Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you so much. First of all, I apologize for sitting down. This was all only because I was going to be in great shape for the book tour, and I, of course, fell on the treadmill the first day I went into the gym. So that's, you know, that's it. So I'm not on a throne because I think I'm the queen. But other, other, otherwise, and I'm also not used to talking sitting down. I love standing when I'm talking. But I can't wait to talk about Churchill because for the last 10 years, as Jim said, I've been completely immersed since a very strange night at Chatsworth in Derbyshire, one of the most extraordinary evenings anybody has ever had. And I had gone there to talk to the Duke of Devonshire and his wife, the Duchess, about Jack Kennedy. And I had no idea that it was going to lead to Churchill. I had absolutely no idea. I knew that Jack you know, would occasionally say something about Churchill or whatever, but the books talk about that. And the moment that Andrew started talking to me, he realized that I was missing a huge, huge piece of the puzzle. And he said to me, you've got to understand exactly what Winston Churchill meant to boys our age in 1938 when Jack was in London and was involved with this whole group of boys, one of whom married Jack's sister, and both of them were killed during the war, which was why Andrew became the Duke of Devonshire. But in any case, he said, if you don't, you know, if you don't, if you don't understand what Churchill meant to us, you can't, you can't possibly do Kennedy. Well, it changed the whole Kennedy book and made the book about the influence of Churchill on Kennedy, and then led to this book. Because as I said to Lady Soames when I talked to her for this book, I have to be absolutely honest with you, I just couldn't give up your father after this was over. And I mean, obviously, I'm sure many of you have heard her speak and so forth. I mean, she, you know, she knew exactly what I meant. And she was very, very sweet and very kind and helpful to me about all of this. And I always laugh because I said, when I came, when I came home from meeting her the first time, I said to my husband, it was like talking to Churchill in a dress. It was very strange because she has his spirit. Mary is his youngest daughter, and she was enormously important. And it leads me to what I think was the reason for doing, for doing this book. This book, as some of you know already, is about the final period of Churchill's public life, the last 10 years, the part of Churchill's life that people pay very, very little attention to. And it's the story of what happened when he refused to retire, when he was, when the conservatives were thrown out, and as he said, he got the boot from the British people, having saved them in, in, in the Second World War. And everybody expected at that point that Churchill would step aside. He was 70 years old. He had had a heart attack in Washington and several heart problems since then. He'd had pneumonia multiple times. He'd been near death endless times. He was in horrendous condition, absolutely horrendous condition at the end of the war. And everybody said after the 45 election, Winston, it's going to be a minimum of 10 years before the conservative party gets back in. Why are you, why possibly are you staying? You'll be 80 years old before we have any chance. We need to rebuild the party. You hate party politics. You, you, know, you want to write your memoirs. There are endless reasons. You've done it. You've defeated Hitler. You have fulfilled, as his wife said, your destiny. Because one of the most important things to understand about the story is that Clementine Churchill desperately wanted her husband to leave. And this would be the first time that they were really at odds about what Churchill's destiny was. And that's very important to understand because he's really alone in this period, alone in a way that he's never been before. And Churchill simply refused. Now, the result of that is 
tumultuous, absolutely tumultuous. It's one of the great political dramas of all times. And where I realized that, that, there, that the story could be told was when I saw, I, I first spotted the idea of, of doing this and, and, and understood that really what I happened upon was probably history's greatest drama of age when I was working in Prime Minister Harold Macmillan's papers at the Bodleian Library in, uh, in Oxford, and I was reading his diaries. This was for the Kennedy book. And something told me, look at, back at the diaries from the period of Churchill's second premiership. I just was curious. This was before they were published, and they, they were very difficult handwriting to read. It was a nightmare. But I opened up the notebooks, and I started reading. And Macmillan had a wonderful way of looking at his life as if he had suddenly found himself at the theater in a front row seat at the greatest production anybody could ever imagine. And that was the way he was writing about being a member of Churchill's government in the, in, 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 from 1951 to 1955. And there were fragments of, of, of scenes and bits and pieces of things that were going on behind closed doors. And I thought to myself, oh, this is really something. This is the, the, I, the, it, but I wonder what the rest of it is. Can you possibly, possibly get it? I knew immediately that it was, it was very much like King Lear, but the opposite of King Lear's decision. Lear decides, you know, he makes the great entrance, having decided to divide up his kingdom and to crawl unburdened to the end. Well, Churchill didn't want to crawl unburdened to the end. But I thought to myself, can I possibly get this? And the reason I ended up writing the book was because I could. First of all, the very, very important thing was that there were a number of people who were alive and willing to talk and willing to explain things to me who were essential. For example, I had two people who were at Potsdam with Winston Churchill. Sir Nicholas Henderson, who was an ambassador in Washington, some of you may have known him when he was here, and a great diplomat, and, and at that point was Anthony Eden's private secretary, and Mary Soames, Churchill's daughter, was there as well. So I had people who were at pivotal moments, and I had all sorts of other people as well as that. But in addition to that, the papers are open now that I needed to go through this, particularly things like the cabinet notebooks, which are essential because so much of the fighting that goes on here, the result of Churchill's decision to stay on is a fight. So much of the fighting that goes on goes on behind closed doors. Now, how do you, how do you get there? And can you do it in any kind of detailed way? Well, when I found that the cabinet notebooks were open, suddenly I had something that's really, really, really important. Usually people are working, when they talk about this period, with something called, and this is technical, but it's important, cabinet conclusions, which means that they tell what the discussion results in in the cabinet, but they don't tell who takes what position, they don't tell who's fighting with whom, they don't do the, the cabinet notebooks at one point were not ever going to be open, but they have been open now, and they give you dialogue, and you see what's actually going on, who's fighting whom, and who's saying what, and whatever. Suddenly, I realized with that, oh, this is incredible, plus which all the American papers are open now, and so I could work for every time I'm, it, I mean, a lot of the fighting is going on between the Americans and Churchill, because this, this, is, this is not the specialist part of the special relationship. That you, it's, the, it's, it's the most tumultuous part of the special relationship that you can imagine. But and I did not want to work with just the British papers or just the American papers, so whenever I describe an encounter with Eisenhower and Churchill, I'm working with what, both what the Brits said and what the, what the Americans said. And usually, they'll, particularly for the Americans, there'll be multiple note takers. So it's, it's, my house looks like Downing Street, uh, except a mess. <laughs> I mean, it's got now all of Winston Churchill's ministerial <laughs> papers in Xerox form sitting there. The Kennedy White House, it's, it's lunacy. And Harold Macmillan's Downing Street, it's very, getting awfully crowded in there. But you have the documentation to do this. And in addition to that, you have 
in, in Churchill's own prime ministerial papers, you have incredible drafts of letters so that you can see the way his mind is working. What I found most interesting in here was that you can get in this period incredibly close to Churchill's thinking as it's unfolding. How, do, how does he get from point A to point B? I've never seen anyth- anything as revealing of, of, his, of his mind as this period and the kind of documentation was there. So once I knew I had this, I had people to, to talk to me. I had, from the Kennedy book, gotten to know the world of Winston Churchill because people had, had been extraordinarily generous with me. And you have to understand, the, and particularly for an American, you I mean you really do need a guide, uh, multiple guides, to understand the way that the British aristocracy works and particularly the world of Winston Churchill and, and in which everybody is related to everybody else and everybody has grudges against everybody else. And in this particular case, one of the most exciting parts of the story, and I won't ruin it for you, although I'd love to tell it, but I won't, I won't ruin it for you, but let me tell you, when you get to the part of the book where Winston is not just fighting what's going on in 1954, but he's fighting what happened in the 19th century with his father, you, you realize, oh, you've got to know that these people are people who live in history. They not only make history, but they're never operating on just one one level. It's always, and particularly for Winston, I mean, he, you know, he, he is a historian, particularly for Winston in this period, he's very much operating in terms of what had happened in the past to his major, en- to the f- from the family of his major enemy in, in, the, in the domestic scene here and what was happening now. It's very, very complicated, and you really do have to understand that, and it has to become sort of second nature to you. And I was just lucky enough to have people who had the patience to go through all of that. Anyway, that's where it all starts. Now... What you have then in this story is a man who's refusing to retire. That means you've got something very strange. You've got a moment where Winston Churchill is like other people, and that's not very usual. Winston is not much like other people in many ways, but he is very much in here a human who is encountering decisions that all of us encounter at one point, when is it time to leave the stage, when do you go, what do you stay, and what happens to those around you and to your relations with them if you refuse to go. So it's a very human, human story, because obviously part of why Churchill was not leaving was because he loved power, and he loved politics, it was his life. As he said, to be on the sidelines watching somebody else making a decision would have made him crazy. How was he going to possibly live with that? So it's, it's, it's a human story, but it's also Winston Churchill. So it's a gigantic story because he was staying also for a very real reason. It is not just about power. It's about saving the world. And Winston Churchill believed at this moment, and not irrationally, that he was the only person who had any chance of understanding what the situation was and of finding a way out of the situation. Because as the story opens, you realize very, very quickly that Winston Churchill had to make the decision whether to go or stay initially anyway at a moment when a lot of people would have said, ooh, if I had known this, yeah, I would have wanted him to stay. Remember. Harry Truman has just come into the, into the presidency when Potsdam takes place, which is where the book opens. And when Potsdam takes place, Harry Truman doesn't have a clue about what's going on. And one of the things that for me, I mean, I remember sitting there with tears streaming down my face when I read the document, the report that was sent back from London to the White House, to Truman, before Potsdam, Truman sent an emissary to Churchill to tell him that he didn't want to meet with him before Potsdam because it would look to the Russians as if they were ganging up, which was the old FDR line, which made Churchill crazy. 
And he said, you know, actually what I want to do is I want to go and meet Stalin first, and then you can come. He thought Stalin was his friend at that point. But what brought me to sobbing tears was the part of the report where the emissary told Winston Churchill that the Americans at that point believed that it was Churchill's fault that Stalin was causing the problems that he was causing in the closing days of the war. And that Churchill had to hear somebody say that to him at that moment is just, I mean, it's just unthinkable. I couldn't believe it. It was horrendous. It was one of the hardest parts of the book for me to do because I was so enraged. But what's so wonderful about it is, of course, Churchill is a much bigger person than I am, and by the time he got to Potsdam, even though Truman didn't know what he was doing, he was more than willing to see that Truman could become a partner and could become something, but he certainly knew that Truman was not at that point ready to deal with Stalin. And by this point, Churchill knew very well who Stalin was, and he believed that he needed to stay, and particularly when he realized that the atomic bomb tests had been successful and that we were now dealing with danger of a new war that would be fought with atomic weapons. And so it's not so crazy to think that somebody who's thrown out in the middle of the peace negotiations because he didn't get to finish Potsdam, the the election results came in in the middle, so literally in the middle of the peace conference, he's thrown out. Nobody wants to hear that, that there could be another war. Churchill knows what's going on, and his feeling was that he had a purpose, and that purpose was a very clear purpose. He must find some way to get back to power and to get to the summit and negotiate a peace with, this, with, with, with the Russians, and that's what this whole story is about. First, it's about the six years of fighting his way back because it was not till 1951 that he got back into the premiership. And then when he got finally back to Downing Street, the years of fighting principally with the Americans, but also with his own colleagues, none of whom wanted him to go to the summit, to, to have a summit meeting with, with, with the Russians. And it didn't ultimately, obviously, work out. But it was, it, it's an incredible fight. It's an incredible It's an incredible story of, of human determination. I mean, when I call it Churchill defiant, I mean, there's a reason he's defiant in here. But I think one, one of the moments where you can understand what this period is like for Churchill is a moment that happens very, very early on. He's made the decision to stay on. Everybody said, you've got to leave. He's not leaving. He immediately starts to move to try and get people to listen to him. And of course, as most of you probably know, the first thing that he does is the Fulton speech. But at the time, nobody knew he was going to be making the Fulton speech. And the way that he puts together the Fulton speech is fabulous. I mean, the way that he gets that, he engineers that, that's pure, pure Churchillian tactics. But in any case, he's on the boat, on the way to New York to, uh, to, to go and make the Fulton speech. Nobody knows it's going to happen. They think he's going on a vacation to Florida. And so does poor Clementine think he's going on a vacation to Florida, but that wasn't what he was doing. And on the boat with Churchill was a whole group of returning soldiers. And they were you know, coming back from Europe, coming, being brought home. And they heard, knew that Winston Churchill was on the boat, and so they said, would the, you know, the prime minister make a, make a speech? He's not the prime minister then. And he comes up on deck, and he makes a speech. And he says to them, now you've had this tremendous experience and what so forth. What you must do now is you must find a way to make your own future. You must make your future. It doesn't just happen. You must make it. And, of course, all the young soldiers all thought that this is an old man. He's 71 by this point. He's an old man. He's talking about the past, and you know, this is how, when I was a young guy, I made my future and everything else. What never occurred to anybody at that moment was that what he was talking about was, I'm about to make my own future. I'm going to Fulton, and I'm going to make this whole thing happen. And it's a start. And I, I think 
it's just it's an incredible thing because at that moment it's inconceivable. But he did. He did make a future. And even though he did not have what he you know what he wanted, which was which was making his way back to the summit, he made an enormous, enormous, enormous impact in those years. He was, we forget, the first he was again Cassandra's back to the thirties again. He's saying the things that no one wants to hear. Everybody's been through a war. They don't want to hear that the Russians are now a danger. What's going on? They don't want to know any of this. So initially, he's Cassandra. He's talking about how you rebuild Europe. He's got all kinds of ideas. And in one of the stranger relationships in history, Stalin and he, the two old men, even though they're the enemies, end up using each other and helping each other in a very, very odd way that I don't think anybody's ever talked about in this period. And it's, it's something very much worth paying attention to. The way in which Stalin helped, and he didn't mean to do it, but he helped Churchill come back to the center of influence. And it, it's, a, it's a fascinating, really intriguing, intriguing story. When he did finally get back, Truman was already on his way on his way out, and then Eisenhower came in. And the conflict with Eisenhower is also, and I'm sure it'll be rather strange for you hearing hearing David Eisenhower in 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 a, in a few days, but be interesting because obviously that relationship is much more complicated than than people talk about. Clearly, these two men won the war together. They are bound to each other forever. They have been through something together that makes them inseparable for the rest of their lives. On the other hand, they fought a lot during the war. And in this period, it's not a very nice relationship, let's put it that way. Churchill wanted to go on. Eisenhower desperately wanted him to step aside. Eisenhower did not want to go to the summit. Uh, and, 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 and at all, Churchill only wanted to go to the summit, and he needed the Americans to go with him. So they're at sword's point. But there's a fascinating period right after Eisenhower becomes president in 1953. Stalin died almost immediately afterwards. I mean, he came in January and March, Stalin is dead. Churchill instantly started pressing, we must get to the new leaders. It is the last thing that Eisenhower wants to do, and I'm not going to ruin it for you why Eisenhower didn't want to go, but Churchill understood perfectly well why he didn't want to go, and it's a wonderful part of the story. And what happened then is something that I can't imagine happening now, and, and I, I can't imagine it happening with anybody except Winston Churchill. The two men, the leader of the two leaders of the free world, the two leaders of the West openly began to fight for control of the West's Soviet policy. At first, it's behind closed doors, and it's, it's the most extraordinary battle. I, I, it, I've never had so much fun writing anything in my life, and I've never had so much fun watching something because, I mean, I love military history, but this is, this is better than two people standing there with guns at, at dawn. And... There's a moment when suddenly they've been fighting behind closed doors and Churchill takes it public. Now, imagine if Tony Blair had decided suddenly to go head-to-head with George Bush and fight for control of the policy of the West at that that moment. It's the most extraordinary thing that's ever happened. Eisenhower nearly had a heart attack of his own when, when this happened. There's an... I remember opening the New York Times just because I was curious, how did people react when Churchill went public and said, Eisenhower is wrong. He is wrong. What he has said is absolutely wrong. This is what we should do. And at that moment, Churchill had the wind at his back. See, Churchill's very sensitive, and he knows when the wind changes. And he knew at that moment that the, it's certainly the British people and the Europeans had had enough of war. If somebody was going to say there's a moment and there's an opening, they're going to go with him. And he used it. And he was, you know, he's fearless. He doesn't care what happens. And poor, poor Eisenhower is 
ready to absolutely collapse, that this has gone in. The New York Times is just gobsmacked, jaws dropping. There's an article in there at the time saying the two leaders of the West, the two great allies, are fighting each other for control of policy. We can't believe this is going on. It's the most wonderful, it's the most wonderful thing you will ever see because you understand, uh, you understand in that moment why Churchill drove everybody crazy and why he was the greatest figure of, of the 20th century without any question. Now, I'm not going to ruin the rest of the whole thing for you, but it only gets more complicated from there because Churchill, instead of going head-to-head with Ike, had a massive stroke. And he didn't stop at that point. He just kept going. But it became more and more and more difficult for anybody to tell whether he was competent or not competent. He was, his condition was extremely difficult to tell, and you could never underestimate him. I mean, there's an incredible moment in 1954 when he arrived at the White House, and everybody thought, okay, this is after the stroke. He's not dangerous anymore. Even Ike relaxed. You can see in the newsreels at the time, Ike is just looking. He's so happy. He's not going to be a problem this time. You know, this old man gets out of the convertible with Nixon at the White House, and Nixon's picked him up at the airport. And Churchill looks horrible. He can barely get up the steps. Mamie is standing on the top of the steps, hauling him up. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And Ike just looks like, oh, my God, this is going to be a nice visit. It's going to be great. And Eden had been sent along as the keeper to be sure that nothing happened anyway. And Eden says to John Foster Dulles, he's really had it. He's going to have to take a nap. You know, we'll leave him up there for four hours or something like that. He'll be... He'll be fine. He'll be fine. You and I can go meet. The president can go relax, do whatever he wants to do. It'll be fine. Mamie takes Churchill upstairs to the bedroom, and Ike goes off, and they, the, the other guys go off to meet. And unfortunately, by the time that Eden and Foster Dulles came out of the room from the meeting, Churchill had crept down the stairs into the Oval Office and gotten Ike alone and completely twisted everything on his head, gotten everything that he had come there for, and held on to it like a bulldog for the entire time he was there. So you could never judge what was going on, although there are days when clearly he's out of it. In any case, this brings me to the end, which is I said to Mary Soames, I said, what do you think? Everybody has a different idea about... What if, what if he had actually gotten to the summit? What if somebody had let him go there? Did we, you know, could he have done something with the Russians? And you know, Eden would say, and with, with a lot of reason, well, what if he had a bad day, which he was capable of having? What if there had been a day when suddenly his hearing was really off and his, his attention span was gone and whatever, and, and, and you're, in, you know, you're in Moscow and you're negotiating? That's not so great. On the other hand, you have evidence of things like what he did in Washington and a hundred other things where you're going to see where he, he's... As Lord Carrington, the, uh, Margaret Thatcher's foreign secretary, said to me, she said he's, he, he, he was in a very junior member of, of, of Churchill's government then, and he, but he was enormously helpful to me in understanding the situation. And Carrington said to me, Barbara, remember, Winston Churchill on two cylinders can outdo most people on ten. And it's, I mean, it's obviously true. But I said, I said to Mary Soames, I said, what do you think? I mean, if anybody was close to their father and knew what his condition is, what do you think? If he had gotten to the summit, could he have done it? And her answer is wonderful. She said, just remember, my father had done a lot of impossible things in the past. We'll never know. But it's certainly a part of Churchill's history that deserves to be written. And I realized when I started to do the book that probably the reason that this period has not been written about is everybody's exhausted by the time they write through World War II. I mean, this is a big career. And the writers are literally exhausted by the time that you get, you get Hitler defeated. But you have to remember, Churchill was tired too, you know? And so it's, you know, we, we have to make the effort. 
it is, it is a period in which there's a lot of controversy, but it is a period also of enormous achievement, and it is the last chapter of the story as he saw it. Because when Andrew Devonshire gave me The World Crisis, and I read the first volume, I realized something that's very important for this, which is that Churchill's plan always, his goal always, was not just to defeat Hitler, but was to make a lasting peace. That was what he wanted to do. And if he wanted this chapter to make his lasting peace, I think he earned it. Anyway, thank you very much, and I'll answer any questions you want to ask. I think you know. I think you know how to sell books. <laughs> if you want to hear the rest of the story, you have to pay I'm very sorry. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll stay all night and tell you the. I think we'd like to hear the story. Joseph Klein, a student here at Lamar High School. Joseph, where are you? Right over there. Joseph asks, throughout all of your research on Churchill, what stands out to you as the single most important attribute that he possessed to continue fighting? Oh. Uh, that's the question. That's the best question anybody could ask because it's something that I had to keep thinking about over and over and over and over again. And when I said to you earlier, you know, that you can understand Churchill's mind, you can see how his mind works. I think the attribute that was most essential was his ability to ignore the negative and look only for the positive. For example, if somebody would write him. Uh, I'm picking on poor Eisenhower tonight. But anyway, it, w- poor Eisenhower would write him a long... He, he, w- he will, So, and I'm sure he will. He'd write him a long letter in which he'd say, I don't agree with you on this, Winston. I don't agree with you on this, Winston. We don't do this. We don't do this. I hate what you did on this. I hate what you did on this. Churchill would write back the next day and say, it's so nice that you like that... And, and he'll come up with some little tiny, tiny, tiny thing that he said that's positive, that's completely innocuous. And that becomes the whole response. But that, you know, on a small scale, but on a big scale, that's how he keeps going. But what's fascinating about it is that not only does he always look for the positive, no matter how something that he can use, something that's positive, no matter how small it is, you'll see when he's making the Fulton speech and all, it's tiny little things, a little phrase of Truman's, anything that he can use. But what's also important in somebody who ignores the negative and this is something that I think is, again, a lesson for all of us as a, hu- as a human lesson. This is an enormously sensitive man. This is somebody who's probably more easily hurt than most people you know. Uh, I, I remember, again, Lady Some saying to me that, uh, that this period, her father was devastated by you know, people, his colleagues wanting him to leave, his allies wanting him to leave. He, he's very easily hurt. So it's when somebody says something negative to him, he reacts, but he doesn't let it influence his action. And I think that, that for me was the, the absolute essential quality of his, the, the always looking for the positive way forward, ignoring the negative. I hope that answers it, does it? I'm going to ask you about sources. Um, if you ignore your oral living sources, you ignore Winston's writing, writing himself, and I suppose we better eliminate bureaucratic things like the foreign relations of the U.S., what would be your most important written historical source that you read? I think in this, probably, well, I have to say, too, I mean, I already said the cabinet notebooks. The cabinet notebooks were a revelation because they were so fresh. They were tremendously fresh. But I think for me, the, the, the thing that allowed me to get into Winston's mind were the drafts of his letters. And in in, 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 in usually somebody's drafts are not, I mean, for example, if you're looking at Kennedy drafts, they're not terribly important because Kennedy drafts are usually being written by somebody else. But in the case of Churchill, he's writing them. And even if a draft comes into him, he then rewrites over it. And you can, uh, you, you can see him think, oh, I'll go one way. Then he crosses it out, and he, goes, and he puts another idea in. And you can see how, how his thinking is unfolding. And I think what I loved was the ability to see the unfolding, not just the finished product, but, but the way that he got to it. And it enabled me at a certain point, sometimes when you watch it carefully enough, 
you could get you could get to the point where you could almost predict, oh, he'll he'll do this, but you don't take that chance too much because he he's he's usually going to do something that's completely unexpected, no matter how well you think you know him. But I think probably the drafts the drafts of the letters were the thing that I loved. I mean, I love paper of of any kind. If you 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 stick me in an archive and I get I, I you know I I I don't like to come out. But I mean, this this was just heaven for me because there's so much paper and there are wonderful diaries and so forth for the period, and wonderful you know his, I think. I'll, oh, I'll tell you something else. No, 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 because I want you to watch this carefully. And, oh, I didn't say this. This is awful. There's a new character in here that none of you know. And this makes the whole e- Anthony Eden story finally make sense after all of this. The Marcus of Salisbury is going to appear. Bobbity Salisbury appears in the flesh and from behind the curtain. And when you add... Bobbity Salisbury, they, the, the Salisburys all had these ridiculous nursery nicknames, which they went by all of their lives. And as Winston said, I hate calling him Bobbity. It's ridiculous. But anyway, Bobbity is the, is, is the guy who runs Anthony Eden. And the reason this story has never made sense before is that the Salisburys, the Salisburys are the leading, the Sissels, the Sissel family at Hatfield House, are the leading Tory family and have been since Queen Elizabeth I, when, with Lord Burley and so forth, but they don't operate in full view. They operate behind the curtain. Now, when I realized I had the opportunity to pull Bobbity out, I felt like I died and gone to heaven because it changes everything. And you will, I mean, Bobbity is fascinating because it's as close as you can get to somebody that Churchill is dealing with as an equal. And so when Bobbity is going, when Bobbity goes against him, and there's a, in, the, in their great confrontation, this extraordinary confrontation that they have, where Bobbity says the unthinkable to Winston, in that confrontation, you, you you see Churchill as you'll never see him in any other in any other circumstance, I think, and you see some Salisbury also. It just, I mean, he's very, very vivid in here. But what's interesting about it is that neither one is a bad guy in, 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 in that confrontation. And it's, boy, it's a fight to the knife. But it, neither one is a bad guy because they both have ideas which they believe in that they think are for the good of the world and the country, but they don't agree. And Winston has to listen to Bobbity, and Bobbity has to listen to Winston. And at a certain point, they're playing this dangerous game of chicken that's sort of unreal. But once, once you have Salisbury in there, but what I started to say was Salisbury's letters were enormously interesting. And the, the letters of Salisbury to Churchill and Churchill's to Salisbury, whoo, <laughs> they're, they're just, they're, they're, oh my God. Because as I say, he says the unsayable. You, you just, you won't believe it. And you won't believe what Winston says in exchange. I mean, he explains how he acts. It's, it's fantastic. It's absolutely heaven. That, thank you for the question. <laughs> yes. In your book on Jack Kennedy, you were an American researching uh, in Britain yeah. um, and uh, writing about an American. Here, you're an American researching in Britain about a Brit. Um, was being an American in this case uh, an advantage or a disadvantage uh, to you in terms of your access or um, your uh, attitudes, opinions, knowledge, et cetera, which might have been different from people who uh, you were talking to who lived through it or, you know, had had lived uh, uh, later? That's, 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 I think I can answer that for you because somebody answered it for me. Um, I couldn't have done this book without the Ken- having done the Kennedy book because people had learned to trust me. And I'd spend a great, great, great deal of time in England and talking to, talking to people, and, and they, they, you know, they, they knew that I was trying to understand, that I was serious, and I think that that really mattered, and I had an enormous backlog of information. But I think that the reason why being an, Admer- an American in this particular case did turn out to be an advantage. I think it had to be a particular kind of American just because you, you couldn't just walk into this. It wouldn't have made any sense. 
but is somebody uh, who, who, who I, I can't really, I mean, it would sound awful if I said it. Somebody that I know in, in London who has read the book said to me, and who knows the politics really, really well, said to me, you know, the thing that's really very bizarre is that this story was hidden in plain sight all along, and it probably did take an outsider to see it. You know, because, my God, much more eminent historians than I am have gone through these papers for years and years and years and been looking at things, and partially they are just tired from, you know, from, from, from what they did. But I, it may have been that it needed, it needed somebody from outside to, 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 to see it that, it, that it, that it was sitting there. And I, I think that, 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 may have, that may have been it. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I hope that, that, that I did it justice. I mean, I did the best I could. I didn't do anything else for, for, for 10 years except think about this stuff. So I did the best I could. And I, I, I think so far the thing, the thing that I've been very happy about is that the people who... who um, you know, were as generous as they were, have re- reacted very nicely to the book. So I've been very, very happy about it. So it yeah, just came out in, in England. Yeah, just came out now. Yeah. Question. Yeah. What was uh, Churchill's attitude about the post-war uh, successes of the U.S. policy, such as the Marshall Plan, Greece, uh, Steel and Iron Board, and everything? He was absolutely thrilled. And again, that's why it's a complicated thing to go into because the the, the relationship with Truman is utterly fascinating too because it started out, it looked like it was going really bad places. And in fact, Churchill saw Truman's potential and was thrilled with Truman taking on the responsibilities that he wanted him to take on. And Marshall, of course, gave Churchill tremendous credit for the Marshall Plan. He said the inspiration came from Churchill's speech about bringing Germany back in. And he was, Churchill was absolutely, absolutely ecstatic at what, at what Truman had done. He was thrilled with it. The Korean War was a problem for him for the simple reason that it was, he, he knew that he couldn't make a real move to the summit as long as that was going on. But I mean, he, he was very pleased. What he said to Truman he thought was the great thing was that Truman rearmed the country, and that was that was essential for 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 him. And I think their relationship. I mean, it's a very funny relationship because obviously there couldn't be two people more unlike. I mean, Truman hates people talking, and he's got Winston who talk makes me sound like I'm silent. And I mean, you know, they, you know, there'd be these wonderful things in the transcript where Winston would start saying these, you know, go on and on and on and on. And finally, you'd see that Truman just couldn't stand it anymore, and he'd say, "Thank you so much, Winston. That's so nice." And you know, he'd just keep cutting him off, and it wouldn't—it wouldn't work. But I mean, it, ultimately, yes, that relationship was a very good relationship. But by, by by the time he got in, I think you know, it, Tr- Churchill said at one point that he had been very happy about the idea of Eisenhower coming in. And then ultimately, he because, well, because obviously he didn't want Taft and he didn't want the isolationism and stuff. But he said ultimately that he probably would have been much happier if it had been Adlai Stevenson and he had continued with the Democrats, which surprised him tremendously. And whether he was right or wrong, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Does your book address the situation in India? No. 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 That's no, I yeah. No, I know. I have to. I I get to do a lot more. You think I'm going to give him up? <laughs> yes. um, during World War II, you can see the the tangible sign and symbol of of Churchill's um, line of hope in that map in the cabinet war rooms, where the yeah. little dots from yeah. the boats coming from America with supplies. What was his line of hope um, in these post war years? Did he have anything like that that kept him going? I think I think that that I don't think that I could give you a physical a physical example of that which and it is a, that's a wonderful physical image of that. I think that for him what kept him going was I think something that Clementine Churchill talks about which is that once Winston thought that he knew what to do nothing ever stopped him from going forward with the plan. I mean, that when the Dardanelles and so forth, that caused him terrible problems. The thing, but once the plan had, he'd made the plan up in his mind, 
you, a hundred people could tell him he was wrong, and he'd keep going with it. And I think he, because of the 30s, because he'd been through that experience of being Cassandra and then being proved right, imagine now he is back here in this same situation, and he can, and, and he does say multiple times in this period when he makes a speech or something, he'll say, remember, I've not always been wrong. I've not always been wrong. And one of the things that's fascinating when you look at the way that he used his memoirs, I mean, the World War II memoirs are never just about that. They're about what's going on in this period. And, it, you, it, and it's extremely important to see when The Gathering Storm is published, when the last volume of the memoirs is published, and in terms of what action is going on now. And he's gauging them and using them in, the, in those terms. But I think having had the experience of being right certainly, certainly helped, I think it does. But I, I wish I had a symbol. That would be very nice. <laughs> Anybody else? You mentioned that he was uh, seeking a lasting peace. After the war uh, uh, was ended, what was his feelings regarding using military force in regards to dealing with Stalin and, 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 and let's say, separating the communist threat. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's the $64 question. And that's something, that's why I needed somebody like Nicholas Henderson to talk to and I needed Carrington to talk to because they, what they said is, I think, something we have to keep in mind. I think Churchill planned very clearly at Potsdam to threaten Stalin with the bomb if he needed to. Now, what Sir Nicholas said to me was, do you really think Truman would have gone along with that? And he owned the bomb. That was his bomb. And he said to me, you, 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 know, you, have, to, you have to think of those things. And I think that Churchill was willing to threaten at least. I don't think, though, that he believed that Stalin wanted another war, and uh, he, he was sure he didn't. Now, let's hope he was right. Say he was right, that Stalin didn't, and probably Stalin didn't. It, it, from everything that I've seen in the Soviet papers, crazy as Stalin was, you know, remember, Russia was in a very bad situation at that point. They were not ready to fight another war. On the other hand, someone else said to me, well, you have to remember what Stalin was, and if they said we're going to drop a bomb and it's just going to kill you know, one section of your population, he'd say, boop, so what, that's it. It's when you get the hydrogen bomb and you're going to kill a lot of them all over that maybe he might have to... Rec- so you don't, you don't know, but Churchill was certainly willing to threaten, and what he hated most was losing, going into Potsdam without what he called his card, his card was that the, 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 the uh, Allied troops had gone very far into Germany, much further into Germany than, than they had planned at the time of Yalta. And he wanted Truman to allow those troops to stay there so he'd have a bargaining chip with Stalin and Truman wouldn't do it. And that made Churchill just absolutely crazy. I mean, he, he, just, he just went wild. Whether whether it would have would have come to work, I mean, he his feeling was that before you had the bomb, was the moment to make the threat. Before they had the bomb, I mean, before the Soviets had the bomb, the, the Americans already had it. But of course, then you have to remember Nicholas Henderson's thing. It isn't really his bomb, even though he thinks it's his bomb. So it's it's a complicated it's a complicated thing, and we we'll never know. We'll never know. Hi, um, you mentioned briefly the relationship with uh, Churchill's father. Um, there was a book a couple of years ago, uh, Gandhi and Churchill. Yeah. I don't know if you had a chance to review that. Yeah. Um, but it dealt with that in great detail, especially yeah. particularly with what Jim was saying, the relationship with India. Mm-hmm. Um, does your book deal with that at all and how that overshadowing of his father uh, No, I did. Him? No, no. Yeah. What I'm referring to in here, I tried very, very carefully to keep this on the line of, because it is, it's, a, it's not by any means supposed to be a, a book that covers every aspect of the, of the premiership or anything else. It's about what happened as a result of his refusal to retire, his refusal to step, to step aside. But the thing that I was dealing with with his father is the question of, the, of his father's resignation. His father made a, when you're asking, he's going to threaten, his father threatened resignation 
when uh, with Lord Salisbury, the earlier Lord Salisbury, and Lord Salisbury very unexpectedly accepted that resignation. So that's what's in play, not not the other. No, no. Anybody on the scene in the last 40 years that comes close to Churchill? I don't think there'll ever be anybody who comes close to Churchill. I, I, I can't imagine it. You know, I, I'll tell you a very personal thing. Years ago, I wrote Orson Welles' biography. And, uh, and actually, it was Orson's attempts to, to do King Lear in the last year of his life that was the sort of looming shadow over all of this because he used to call me up on the phone and do... He, he wouldn't say this is Orson Welles. He'd say he'd do... Lear's entrance after he's divided the kingdom and he'd suddenly start, he'd start talking about going, you know, crawling on burden. And Orson used to say to me, you'll never match me. You'll never match me. You'll never have anything like me again. And I thought for much of my life that I never would. And I felt so guilty when I fell in love with Churchill because I must say, there are, there, there are similarities, and they're very, you know, obviously in very completely different things. I mean, one is, but both of them are complete originals in their, in their own field. But the difference with Churchill is that, that it's every place he touches. You know, it's, it's, it's that he can write, he can do history, he can, he can do politics, he can do, he can do painting, he can do bricklaying, he can do, he can do marriage, too. I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, anybody who's read the love letters of, 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 of Winston and Clementine, you fall in love. Oh, I, that's, that's the one thing I should explain. Because somebody asked me this today. I quoted Churchill's uh, call, description of himself as an obstinate pig. He said, to, he said to, to Eisenhower, I am an obstinate pig. And somebody was really sort of, how could he say that about himself? Well, he loved that he was an obstinate pig. I mean, he, he's Churchill defiant. But you also always have to remember that the pig was the Churchill symbol. He always signed his letters to Clemmy, your pig, and the little picture of the pig. So pigs aren't all bad in the, Churchill, in the Churchill world. Anyway, that's a long answer to the question. There will never be anybody else like this. Robert, no. Thank you so much. Thank for you. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.